I'm going to read the Bible now as well before Jez comes up and um, preaches for us. So we're continuing in Matthew. So I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, if you want to grab your Bibles at home. So Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the word of God. All right, great to have you all with us, whether you're just visiting church or you're dropping by or you're a member here and you're with us week to week in person normally. When we gather again in person, uh, we would love to have you with us. And um, if you are new or visiting, one of the ways to let us know and where we can get in touch with you as restrictions ease and as we come back to meeting in person would be just to grab the, uh, the welcome form that's there in the comments. It should be linked up the top. And just open that up and let us know uh, where you're up to and we'll get in contact with you. But also, if you are a regular member here, if you could actually do me a favor, if you could find that form, because right at the end of this talk, after we've moved through Jesus' teaching on judgment, there's going to be an opportunity to respond there. And so I'd love if you could to have that open, just to get that link and that page open as a way to respond to something a little bit later after we've moved through the Word of God. Now, our hope and prayer over this time is that uh, the far from actually going backwards in your faith over this time, that as a church individually and as a community, that we'll actually be growing forward in our love for God and for other people, and uh, and that we'd actually be thriving during lockdown. And one of the ways that we want to help you do that is we're running a podcast every Monday about helping you to connect with God day by day, Uh, and we'll be speaking a little bit tomorrow about an hour with God that Anna has put together, and so we'd love to be in touch with you about that, but that'll be tomorrow at 12.30, live on the Facebook group, but also on our podcast afterwards, so you can check it out whichever way. But today, we're we're continuing moving through the Sermon on the Mount, which is a teaching, a section of teaching within the Gospel of Matthew that we're looking at over this year. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is an account of Jesus' life, his teaching, his ministry, that was recorded by Matthew, who we'll meet in a few chapters' time. And he's written down this account so that people might know and follow Jesus, because in him is life. And we're in this section where Jesus is teaching his followers what it's going to mean to follow him and what it's going to look like. And here, he has a very clear message, and it's simply this, do not judge. Do not judge. Now, in one sense, that's easy to get your head around, and it's quite a simple kind of impact statement. But in another sense, it is complicated, isn't it? See, we are, we're a society where probably one of, the, one of the worst character assessments someone could make of you is to call you judgmental. Because to be judgmental is to be intolerant. And we're a society that, that in, at least on one level, values tolerance. That a big part of being a free democratic society is that we've been able to, in many ways, tolerate a broader range of diversity and worldview than many cultures throughout time. But recently, tolerance has become a bit of a fraught subject because over time, what we mean when we use the word tolerance has changed. And to kind of explain how this has changed from sort of the old tolerance to the new tolerance, let me share with you an illustration that was made popular by Gotthold Ephraim Lessing. Remember Gotthold? What a guy. 
Anyway, here's a story that, uh, kind of like a parable that he had told, that sort of became a popular way of understanding what we're talking about when we talk about the old tolerance. He tells a story of a father who had inherited a magic ring, and this ring gave him favor with God and with, you know, humankind, and he had three sons that he dearly loved. And over time, at various points throughout, you know, his, um, his time with his sons, he'd, he'd promised this ring to each of his sons. And by the time, you know, he's sort of, he was coming close to the end of his time on earth, he realized that he'd painted himself into a corner and started to panic. And so he told all of his sons that they, would, they were getting the, the actual magic ring, and he made two copies and gave it to all of them. Now, once he had died, the sons realized that they'd been duped, and so they went to a judge to kind of settle the dispute. But the judge resolved that each of them should go away and said this, If each of you in truth received his ring straight from his father's hand, let each believe his own to be the true and genuine ring. And the moral of the story is this. The truth is out there. There is an actual true ring. But seeing as no one has sufficient means to prove categorically that they have the right ring, the truth, then you need to be kind of somewhat circumspect in how you hold your opinions. And so this was the belief about truth and therefore about tolerance. The idea that no one could guarantee categorically that they were the ones who had the capital T truth. Therefore, you needed a certain amount of humility about your own opinions and you needed to allow for a diversity of opinion. That's, it led to phrases like, I despise what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. This was the belief about tolerance. That because no one can actually prove that they have the only truth, we need to allow for discussion and you can make a case for your beliefs and I can for mine. But this definition of tolerance has probably changed. Well, not probably, it has definitely changed. The modern vision of tolerance would be something like this. If you were to retell Lessing's story, it would go like this. The father has this magic ring, promises it to his sons. They realize after he's died that they've all been given the ring and there's only supposed to be one. But then the judge says to them, look, what actually makes the ring magic is that you believe it to be magic. So each of you does have a magic ring, and therefore you're all equally right. Do you see the difference? In that, the modern vision of tolerance is that you can't say that someone else's view is wrong because we're all equally right. And so with this comes a new vision for tolerance. The belief is that tolerance means that you have to affirm that my view is as right as yours. But what that means then is that there is a relative amount of intolerance for anyone who would have a difference of opinion. That is to say that the only, the only thing we do not tolerate is intolerance, which is anyone who has an opinion that would offend the majority position. And over time, this actually has meant that we are unwilling to tolerate more and more views. And it's been a closing down of tolerance in many ways. And so many of those uh, who in the 70s and 80s were spruikers for free speech and the like are now concerned about what's happening the generation after. Tolerance is becoming more and more difficult and more and more fraught. What we need is a way to be able to confront other people's views, but with a generosity of spirit and with a lack of judgmentalism that could actually mean that we could live with difference in harmony. And what I'm going to put to you is that Jesus' teaching, his teaching on not judging, is exactly what we need right now. That he is a way of being able to confront without condemning. 
to be able to, to, to be able to confront one another without judgment, and to be able to receive criticism with humility, and that really it's the gospel alone of Jesus that can empower us to do this. And so I'm going to pray that as we open Jesus' words this morning, that he'd be speaking directly to our hearts. And I'm going to pray also that right now that we'd be able to clear out distractions, that you'd be able to close down other browser windows or other kind of devices and things that might be vying for your attention, that we might be able to just focus in on what God has to say to us here about not judging. Let's pray. Father, we just pray with so many potential distractions at the moment that you might clear our thoughts and our hearts to sit before Jesus, our King, and to hear what he has to say to us. We might hear your word to us this morning. We might hear how the gospel empowers us to be a people who are not judgmental, who can hold a point of difference, and yet with humility and with grace. And that as people who have received grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we might be gracious to others. Father, strengthen us to be this way and to be a witness to Jesus in the world. Amen. What I want to put to you is that what Jesus says on toleration, on not being judgmental, is really what we need to hear right now. That what he teaches about what it should be and what the motivation for it is, is like nothing else you'll find in this world. And it starts here in Matthew 7, 1. Open with me to Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Jesus says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. Jesus starts here with a very clear command. He just says, judge not, do not judge. But what is he talking about when he's talking about judging? We can use the term relatively loosely, can't we? You can, you can judge a competition whereby you decide on the best wine or movie as a judgment of taste or preference. You can judge a decision to be a good or bad financial decision. But what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? Does he mean that you literally cannot form an opinion on anyone or anything? That you can't assess things, you can't critique things, you can't cast any kind of negative opinion on something? What does it mean to judge? Well, the Greeks, and this is the original language that we have recorded here for us in the Bible, use the word judge with the range of meaning that we pretty much use it for. But frequently, this word is used in the Bible in connection with God's judgment of us as people, even a moral judgment or even a final moral judgment. And the word here to judge is the word that is used in speaking of the final judgment. And so with that, it it carries the weight of a moral assessment as to whether people are righteous or unrighteous, evil or good. This is the final judgment that God himself will make of all people, we're told in Scripture. And so the word does carry this meaning. So is Jesus saying, so Jesus is saying rather, that his people then are to not sit in judgment over others. They're not meant to sit in judgment over them like God would. Now, what what exactly does this mean for us? There's never going to be a situation where you're going to sit in judgment over all peoples for all all history, all all mankind. But no, what he's saying is, 
you are not a judge in the sense that you would sit there as the holy, righteous judge of the universe and look at another person and cast them as guilty and yourself as entirely innocent. God alone is the one who has perfect knowledge and the one qualified to pass judgment on another in that way. And Jesus is saying you cannot do that. You cannot sit and judge someone as though you were perfectly innocent and they were perfectly guilty. But we do do it, don't we? We often talk in this manner, and we, we like to. If you, at the moment, feel like, look, I, I kind of get what you're saying, but I don't really see that much in my life, just ask yourself this simple question. What is a topic that, when it comes up, you cannot help but speak about it? You're like, you're like a runaway train. Once it gets going, you just can't help but find yourself casting out all kinds of opinions on it. I'd put here, it, as an example for myself, just Christian music. That there are times when I, I'm, not, I'm not even like actually even probably a musician or anything, but I just find myself weighing in. I mean, that never stops us from having opinions on things, does it? But I just find myself running away with opinions on it. Or even before, we were just talking before this, and it, even on minor topics, I can find myself weighing in with too heavier an opinion. Just before this, Nate was asking what my opinion was of Lane Cove National Park. I've probably been there twice in my life, but I'd say, well, I'd judge the heck out of it. <laughs> Sorry if you're a Lane Cove Park lover. But why do we do it? Why do we find ourselves doing it? It's because there's some almost sick delight that we find in looking down on something as stupid or beneath us, and so we almost can't help but speak about it. I mean, think about your work context. We love to gossip with our colleagues about the incompetent colleagues, all the idiots in this place who don't know how to get the job done. At schools, bullying is the delight of saying, I'm popular, you're a loser. I'm attractive, you're ugly, I'm smart, you're stupid, whatever it is. When we judge, we say, I'm better than you. I'm not like you, you are beneath me. And it makes us feel powerful, and it makes us feel clean, because compared to someone else, we're better. And Jesus says, you are not to judge. And he gives a motivation for it too. Look at what he says in Matthew 7, 1 to 2. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The motivation here, it says, not to judge, is so that you will not be judged. Now what does this mean? Is Jesus saying, don't think you're better than anyone else. Because if you refrain from judging, other people won't judge you like kind of a horizontal dynamic. These are kind of social tips in a way. Well, I don't think this is what he's talking about for a couple of reasons. Firstly, is that that's not very, a very strong motivation. If he's saying, do not judge because then you won't be judged, it's kind of a social motivation to say, well, don't do it because people won't like you. So therefore, your motivation mainly is that I, I want to be thought of as a good person. So don't, don't judge other people because then other people will think poorly of you. But the truth is that if you have a problem with feeling superior, you probably don't really care that much that some people don't like you for it anyway. So it's not a particularly strong motivation. But the second reason is it's simply not true. Just because you're a nice person doesn't mean that people are going to be nice to you. In fact, Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount by saying, you are to bless people even when they revile you. Not only that, but Jesus himself knew he was the most loving person who has ever walked the earth and he was not liked for it. He was crucified for it. So I don't think Jesus is saying here, don't judge because then other people won't judge you. 
Now, I think here he's going to the motivation that goes straight to God. He's saying, don't judge because otherwise God will judge you. And you might be sitting there thinking like, how is this a more tolerant worldview? What God says, don't judge or else I will judge you like 50 million times what you judge other people. But I think pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying here because it is brilliant. Now he says, the measure you use will be the measure that is used to measure you. This is where you might have heard the phrase measure for measure from Shakespeare. It's from this particular teaching of Jesus. He says, whatever is your measure, your scale of judgment, he says that will be the one that's measured to you. Because in the Bible, there are two measures by which you may stand before God. There is the measure of grace and there is the measure of works. If you want to stand before God by works, you would have to stand there and say, God, I am righteous by my own good deeds. I have done enough to be declared good by you. But Romans 3 tells us there is none righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who will be able to stand before God on the final day and say, God, you owe me a declaration of righteous judgment. None of us have done it. But thankfully, there is a second way. The reason Jesus is here and teaching people is because he's created a way of grace. The grace is that we could not pay, so Jesus comes down to die our death, to pay the debt for our sin, so that we could be forgiven and set free. This is the way of grace. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to, stand by the, the, if you want to live by the measure of works, then you will face the judgment and it will not be good. But if you live by grace, you ought to treat others by grace. He says, measure for measure. You can think of it in this way. Imagine you were, imagine you were going on a, a diving expedition to the deepest part of the ocean, the Mariana Trench, so you're hitting sort of somewhat in the order of eight kilometers down. And going down there, you know that the pressure is intense, so there's obviously no oxygen, and once you're down there, no oxygen for many hours before you can resurface. And let's say they said to you, you have two options. You can either take this deep sea grade submarine or there's some supplies here. You can build your own. It's up to you. What maniac would at that point say, yeah, I'm, I'm going the DIY version? Of course you wouldn't. You would take the one that's actually built for it rather than live off your own, like try and build your own. Jesus is saying here, when it comes to life, you can choose either the way of works, the do-it-yourself version, or his free gift of grace, the righteousness that he has won for you. And he says, if you want to live by the measure of works, no one will be able to stand before God. But in God's grace, he has made a way back to him through Jesus. And he's saying, if that's the case, if you're someone who is a follower of Jesus, and you say, I, I can't do it myself, I want grace, then he, means that, then he says, you need to show grace to, other, to others. If you live by the measure of works where you want to be able to say, I've done this, I'm better than others, he says that there is no way to live. Not only that, that is the way of death. But he says if you know grace, then you treat people according to that measure. If it was the case that you were not treated according to your works, then you were to do the same. If you do not want to be judged before God by your own works, then don't hold other people to that standard either. There's a great old phrase that says, there, but, there go I, but for the grace of God. The belief in the gospel is that really, in the end, we're all the same. 
just sinners in need of grace. And that I'm of no better standing than anyone else, but simply I'm here because of the grace of God. So Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're going to be my people and follow me, if you want grace, then you are to treat others by that same measure. That you are to be gracious to others, so don't judge. And he's saying this because he knows there is a human propensity to want grace for ourselves, but justice for others. Or judgment for others, rather. I remember I had a friend in high school who every time, every time we were around a pool table would always mention to everyone before the game starts that there was a rule called pants down around the table. And that was that if you, if you lost the game without sinking a single ball, the punishment was you would have to streak around the table. And this is in a, you know, a public setting. And every time we'd play, he'd mention it. And of course, it never came up. No one ever, got, ever lost that badly. Until one day, he lost that badly. And funnily enough, when it came to the end of the game, he was like, oh, no, it's all just banter and just jokes and all that sort of stuff, blah, blah, blah. But I tell you what, if someone else had done it, he would have been on them like a flash. No pun intended, obviously. But it's often the case, isn't it, that we want grace for ourselves, we want one standard for ourselves and another for other people. We want grace for ourselves, but we want to be able to judge other people according to their works. Jesus says this is not the way of the gospel. He says, judge not. He says, if you are a people who want to live by grace and have been extended grace from God, then you are to be the same to other people. You are not to judge. And notice here that Jesus doesn't say that this means that you will never confront someone over things. Look, the very next section he teaches on addresses that issue, doesn't it? Look at what Jesus says about confronting others even whilst knowing that you yourself are a sinner. In Matthew, 5, in Matthew 7, 3-5, he says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is meant to be giving here a, a kind of a, a funny image. Imagine having a two-by-four how you would still be alive, obviously, with a two-by-four poking out of your eye, who knows? It's meant to be a joke. But imagine having something protruding from your face like that at the same time as trying to address in your friend the fact that they had a speck in their eye. Of course, it's absurd, isn't it? There's no way that that could actually work. It's ridiculous. And here he's saying it's the same way. When you go and address someone else's sin, like you have no sin of your own to be addressed, well, you can know at that point it's hypocrisy. But notice here, he doesn't say, so then never take the speck out of your brother's eye. But he says, actually, be circumspect about it. First, deal with your own sin. Know that God's grace is enough to deal with your own shortcomings and failings. And then you'll be in a position to help someone else, a fellow sinner, rather than being like taking the moral high ground and coming and helping the lesser person. You'll be able to humbly address sin in your brother or sister's life, knowing that you yourself are a sinner who needs grace too. That you will extend grace just as grace has been extended to you. It's kind of in the same way. Alcoholics Anonymous has been one of the most successful drug and alcohol rehab programs of all time. And part of it, obviously, is the the 12 steps, if you know anything about the program. But also, a, a, a key part of it is that there is a, a mentoring program. 
And generally, if you go through the program, you'll be assigned a mentor who themselves is a recovering alcoholic. And the reason this is such a successful dynamic is that someone who has struggled with the same thing you are struggling with can be very direct with you, yet without judgment. Can call you out on what you need to be called out on, on destructive behaviors, and yet at the same time to do it with a grace knowing that they themselves have struggled with it. That they're not doing this because they feel better than you or because they're looking down on you, but simply because they want to help you. This is what the gospel gives us. Being able to be real about sin in our own life and in others, yet without judgment. It can be an honesty about yourself. And it means that we can be a people who can both give and take criticism well. The gospel empowers you in a unique way that no other worldview does to be able to receive criticism and give criticism well. To be a more tolerant people. If you, if you obey Jesus, have you ever thought about this? If you believe the gospel, you should be really good at taking criticism. Let me just ask you a couple of questions to kind of get you into, into thinking about just how deep or not deep the gospel has gone in this particular area of life. When you receive criticism, and let's leave aside whether or not it's fair or unfair, whether it's from a friend or a foe or whatever. When you receive criticism, are you defensive? Do you fight criticism? How do you typically react to correction? Do you pout? Do you tend to attack the person? Do you reject the content of criticism often? Do you seek advice? And when you seek it, how well do you take it? Are you teachable? Are people able to approach you and correct you on something? Do you tend to harbour anger against the person who has pointed out an area of failing? Do you immediately seek to defend yourself, hauling out your own righteous acts as a reason why this person is completely wrong and their criticisms are entirely invalid? Or even ask yourself this question. Can my friends, parents, spouse, children, brothers, sisters or friends correct me? Because the question at the bottom of all of these is how deep has the gospel gone in my life? See, why is it deep down that we resist criticism? I think it's that we fear that people are actually right about us and that if that's true, that it will be more shame than we can bear. That we are deeply flawed and we can't bear it, so we fight it tooth and nail. We disqualify people's opinions of us or we disqualify them entirely as a person because we can't bear that one of those flaws would land and that it would mean that we are deep down entirely flawed and shameful. But see, this is why the gospel of Jesus is so powerful. Alfred Poirier, who wrote an article called The Cross and Criticism, explains that if you really get the gospel, then you agree with God on two things. You agree with his criticism of you that you're a sinner, but you also agree with his justification of you that you are a loved child of God, made new in Jesus, righteous and made perfect. And that means that you can take criticism without fear because if anyone points out that you're a sinner, they're only pointing out what God has already pointed out. But not only that, at the very bottom of, of our being is the truth that we are loved by God. And if God is for you, who can be against you? That we are not at our core shameful and to be rejected, but we are loved and accepted by the creator of the universe. And so Poirier writes that you can respond, if you believe the gospel, you can respond to criticism in this way. He says, and it will come up on the screen for you, 
You might be, you'll be able to say, you have not discovered a fraction of my guilt. Christ has said more about my sin, my failings, my rebellion and my foolishness than any man can lay against me. I thank you for your corrections. They are a blessing and a kindness to me. For even when they are wrong or misplaced, they remind me of my true faults and sins for which my Lord and Saviour paid dearly when he went to the cross for me. I want to hear where your criticisms are valid. If you literally respond to someone like that, it's probably going to come across a little bit you know, holier than now, but you get what he's getting at, right? If you believe the gospel, this is true. This is true. That God loves you. That you are accepted. And you're at the same time a sinner. So of course there are going to be things that need to be pointed out to you. It can make us somewhat more objective or philosophical about these criticisms. We're able to take disagreement well. We're able to tolerate when other people have a difference of opinion to us with grace and humility. And it also means when we confront people, we'll do it without a sense of being holier than thou. Because we know that because of the gospel, that the, the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. That there is no one who is better than anyone else. That when we are addressing our sin in a brother or sister or a misunderstanding or whatever it is, we're doing it as fellow sinners in need of grace. None better than the other. See, when we understand the gospel, Jesus is saying here, you'll be, become a people who are not judgmental. You don't have a plank sticking out of your own eye while you're addressing the speck in everyone else's life. Who are spending all of your time and energy and thought life thinking of all the problems with all the other people, but able to humbly know that you need to change and that God will give you the grace to do it and therefore you don't have to stress or worry about it or be defensive. And at the same time, you can have the courage to address it in other people's life for the sake of love, not for the sake of feeling better about yourself. There is nothing like the gospel that equips us to be a humble people who can confront without judgment. And so if this is something that you feel particularly convicted that you want to grow in, the reason I wanted to get you to open up that form at the beginning of this sermon is I, I'd love to send you that article. If this is something over lockdown, we've got more time than ever to just think a little bit more introspectively. But if this is something where you want to grow in, where you want to see the gospel bear more light and fruit in your life, then I'd love to pass it on to you. And for us to be a community where we help one another to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a part of a small group here at City Light, we're going to be meeting after the service just briefly. And if this is something you want prayer for, I encourage you to bring it before the group. If it's something you feel convicted of. Because Jesus has called us to be a people who are transformed deeply by the gospel. It is exhausting to be a defensive person, isn't it? It is exhausting to be the kind of person who's always casting judgment on others. The grace and hope of the gospel is that we can be a people who give and take criticism well because we trust and love Jesus and his, work, his gospel has done a deep work in our hearts. Let's pray that this would be the case. Father, we praise you that in the gospel we are called to accept your judgment on us, that we are sinners who have not lived rightly and who need help. We praise you so much that in the gospel that you demonstrate your love for us that even while we were enemies of Christ, Jesus died for us to bring us into a relationship with you. That you love us and delight in us as your, as your very own children. And so we pray that this would equip us to be a people who can hear when we have done wrong and at the same time who are able to confront and yet without judgment. 
Father, we pray that we'd be strengthened to shine the light of Christ in this way and to be a people who are genuinely tolerant. More than that, who are actually loving. And all of this for the sake of Jesus. Amen.